Hi, everyone, and welcome to the From the Hack podcast for week seven of the 2018-2019 curling season. It was another busy weekend in the world of curling with the Elite 10, the first Grand Slam of the season, taking center stage. Anna Hasselberg and Brad Gushu, the winning skips at the Elite 10, both join us on the podcast this week. Our other guests include Matt Dunstone, whose team won the Prestige Hotels and Resorts Classic in Vernon, and Karsten Sturme, who skipped his team to victory at the Avenir Cash Bill in Edmonton. Our feature interview this week is with Mike Harris of Sportsnet. We discuss topics ranging from sponsorship to which players may be feeling the most pressure this season to some of the stories that he will be keeping a close eye on during the curling season. All this and more this week, but first, Canadian musician and non-curler extraordinaire Jimmy Reed, who happens to be getting married this weekend, plays us into the podcast. So before we get started, if you've ever wondered how they get those nice graphics into the ice at Grand Slams at the World Championships and at Nationals in Canada and the U.S., well, the answer is provided by Jedi's, whose in-ice graphics from easy and textile logos to the world-famous Jedi's Full House product are great ways for clubs to enhance the appearance of their ice and to generate much-needed additional sponsorship revenues. Easy and textile logos are the industry standard for high-quality logos and they're a snap to install. Meanwhile, Jedi's customizable full houses are a relatively new way for clubs to grow sponsorship revenues by offering maximum brand recognition to those sponsors. No one can match Jedi's design services, quick turnaround times, and product quality, which is why Jedi's products are valued by major organizations such as Curling Canada, the World Curling Federation, USA Curling, and Sportsnet, who trust Jedi's to provide the products they require for their high-profile events. Jedi's. They bring ice to life. Arnold Ashton's passion for curling, along with his natural propensity to explore new ways to better the game, led him to a whole new world of product design. As a result, all Ashton Curling Supplies products are designed with the curler in mind. Ashton's patented ultralight RDS technology makes it possible to change and customize their slider with any combination of sliding discs. With equal resistance on all sides, the circular design that guarantees a straight slide. These circles have also been designed larger and with stabilizing bars from the outer unit sole to produce the most stable straight sliding shoe the world has ever seen. Go to www.asham.com for brooms, apparel, and revolutionary designed footwear. And if you're considering buying new curling shoes, you must consider the rotator sole. It's the sole of the future. From the Hacks recap of week 7 of the 2018-2019 curling season is powered by The Curling Zone, your premier source for curling results from around the world. Visit us at www.curlingzone.com. As mentioned, the Elite 10, the first event of the 2018-2019 Pinty's Grand Slam of Curling, took place this past weekend in Chatham, Ontario. With so many new lineups playing in the season's first Grand Slam, it might not be surprising that the two championship teams were among the squads that remained intact following the end of last season. In the women's event, Team Hasselberg continued their strong play early this season by defeating Team Tim and Zoni 4-up with two ends to play in the final. Skip Anna Hasselberg joined us moments after getting off the ice in Chatham. Anna, you've obviously enjoyed much success over the past couple of seasons, including at the Olympics last year, but this was your first Grand Slam title as a team. How does it feel to have finally gotten that first Slam victory? No, it feels like a huge tick mark. We worked really hard to be in the Slam Series and now to win one, and that's been a huge goal for us uh, since we came into the Series. So like, I'm very, very happy uh, how we performed the whole week. So tell me about that angle raise, double takeout in the fifth end of the final that gave you the three-up lead. It was a really nice shot at a key moment in the game. 
Yeah, for sure it was. And I, I saw it right away that I wanted to do it, and they, then they took uh, the time out, and I uh, I went down to the coach, and he really wanted me to throw it too. So I, like, uh, I really saw it, and uh, I really liked those ones, and <laughs> I'm happy I made it. You had a familiar face serving as your coach at the Elite 10. Wayne McDaw certainly has a lot of experience with the match play format. How did having him around help your team on the weekend? Yeah, like he used to come up here, so we, we talked to him, and then we had a practice day uh, before coming here, uh, and we talked a lot during the week, too. So he really have uh, given some easy pointers, and some like he's, uh, he's really good with this format, and he has given us a lot of confidence uh, like playing our game plan, and uh, it really worked well for us. And finally, Anna, after all the success your team had last season, including winning a gold medal at the Olympics, it would have been understandable if you had started the season slowly. But your team made the final of the World Cup event in China, and now you've won your first career Grand Slam event. Are you at all surprised with your team's early season success? Uh, not really. Like, uh, It's very important for us to be high ranked now because it's uh, our qualification for the Euros. So uh, it's like... It, I think that kept us motivated and kept going. So uh, this really will help to qualify us for the Euros. So I'm not surprised. I think we have talked through how different emotions will affect us coming on from like that kind of season we had last year. And we took a long and uh, long, uh, really nice summer, and we're fully energized now. In the men's event in Chatham, Team Gushu, playing in their first event of the season, took an early two-up lead and held on to defeat Team Carruthers, one up in the final. It was an 11th career Grand Slam title for Brad Gushu, who joined from the hack to discuss his team's victory in Chatham, and also to discuss some of the off-ice work that goes into preparing a team for a new cycle, including sponsorship and preparing a four-year plan. Brad, yours was the only team to make their season debut at the Elite 10. Were you surprised about how quickly you managed to find your groove? Yeah, I was. Um, you know, I expected, uh, well, I really didn't have any expectations, to be honest, going in. Uh, we actually had our flights booked on Sunday, so we certainly didn't expect to, to be in the final and, and to win the event. Um, you know, this is the latest we've started our season in many years, and, you know, we just wanted to, uh, to go in and play well, kind of get our feet wet and, and start the season, but to, to come out with a win is certainly a bonus. The Elite 10 uses the match play format. Was that perhaps a good thing for the different teams participating in the first slam of the season? A format where you can make mistakes and instead of giving up three or four points, you simply lose the end. Yeah, I I certainly think it benefited us uh, to start the season. I think probably for us, the biggest part is, you know, the communication and getting those rocks in, in the in a perfect spot to take away multiple shots is, uh, is a big feature in, in that style of game. And uh, with us, being a returning team and you know now our fifth season I think uh, we were able to do that and I noticed some of the teams we played especially the ones that had new lineups you could see they made not necessarily mistakes but just didn't have the the detail that we had in in, in place in the rocks and and that really just comes with some time and and um, you know developing that communication and what what works for the team so you know, it was an advantage for us at this point of the season, but I certainly think once we get to Truro, um, you know, that's going to that's gonna reduce more and more with the more uh, all of these teams play. The final two seasons of the last cycle were very busy ones for your team with a lot of extreme ups and certainly a few significant down moments. How nice was it to get away from the sport this past summer and get a chance to properly recharge your batteries before starting a new quadrennial? Yeah, it was a... You know, it's a crucial part, really, of our off-season plan, and, and and you see it in a lot of sports that, 
you know, athletes the year after the Olympics actually, you know, take the full season off. And, and uh, that's not something that ever crossed our mind or, or was ever a uh, an idea for us. But certainly we wanted to reduce the amount we played and, and start the season later. And um, really in the last five or six years, we've noticed the season has kind of been stretched out at the end of the season and, and certainly at the beginning as well. And, you know, last season we started in, I guess, probably – third week of August when we played the Everest and then all of a sudden we were finishing on on May 1st when we played the final of the uh the Champions Cup so you know if you keep doing that for four years and playing the amount that we play uh, we've played over the last couple of years you're, you're going to get close to a burnout and and um, you know we're not getting any younger uh is another another part of it and you know I think we want to make sure that we uh we pace ourselves over this four-year cycle and, and make sure that we're ready come year three and four when the points are really going to start to matter and add up. And um, you know you want to be you want to be playing your best come the last two years of the cycle. What's the approach for a team like yours when planning a new Olympic cycle? Do you simply reverse engineer the four years to best position yourselves to be peaking come those trials in late 2021? Or do you simply plan one year at a time with the objective being to qualify yourselves as quickly as possible for the trials? Yeah, I, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. We, we try and reverse engineer it. And, you know, that last season uh, with the trials, that's when you want to be playing your best. You want to be fresh. You want to be ready to go. But you also got to keep in mind that you got to make sure you get your spot into the trials. And, and uh, that's not an easy task in Canada and, and uh, you know I'm probably one of the best uh, people to talk to on that because you know we missed out um, on the two trials in in, uh, in 20 or I guess 2009 and 2013 uh, we missed both of those trials and we're uh, probably the, the next next best team or the best team that didn't make it in in, in both of those situations and um, you know, you want to make sure that you're playing for that opportunity. And, and uh, so that third year is really crucial to make sure that you play enough and you're playing well to make sure you're in your points. Um, you know, the situation this time around is probably different in both of those years because I do think our, our team is uh, is much better and, and probably in a much better situation to make sure we do qualify. But we're not going to make – we're going to – you know, make sure that we, we earn enough points in, in that year in particular to uh, to get our spot. And hopefully, you know, even before that, we put ourselves in a, in a good position. So this year, really, there's not much on at stake as far as the, uh, you know, the Olympic quadrennial goes. And, and next year, I'm sure if it's like the last quadrennial, there'll be a little bit. But again, still not, uh, not a crucial year. So uh, you, you ramp it up. And, and certainly in year three and four, it gets... Uh, you know, bigger and more important. And finally, Brad, there was a story that was reported on the weekend about the financial difficulties that Team Adin in particular is facing this season, despite all the success they had in the last cycle. Yours is one of the teams that it seems to be doing well when it comes to sponsorship, recently adding Purolator Courier and Kubota to your roster of sponsors. What was the process like in setting up your sponsorships for the current cycle? Is it something you perhaps even started during last season, or was it something you tackled once the off-season started? It's a great question, and, and um, really for us, we started, uh, I guess, probably in the spring of last year. We kind of had an idea of, of our which sponsors were, were going to be staying, which were going to be going, and you wanted to um, you want to prepare yourself for that four-year cycle. So, you know, we pushed hard this summer, and, and uh, really it comes down to just knocking on doors and, and, 
you know, even though we've got, uh, you know, three new sponsors this year with Belfour, Kubota, and Purolator, I probably, uh, we got turned down by probably 60, 70, 80 other companies that we had approached and, and maybe not necessarily turned down, but just the, the timing wasn't right or, or the, uh, you know, they were going a different direction. So, um, you just got to knock on doors and, and, and you, you can't be afraid to, to hear no because you're going to hear that. And, and essentially you're in a, you know, when you're trying to sell sponsorship, you're in a sales position and, and, um, you know, as any salesperson will tell you, you you got to hear a lot of no's before you get your yeses, and and uh, you know it is a challenge um, to to get sponsorship because uh, curling's kind of in a in a unique spot where we're not uh, necess- we're not a professional sport like like hockey or baseball, and and you know some of the real big companies that's kind of where they want to spend their money, and and then on the other side. You know, we're big enough that, um, you know, you're probably not going to get your mom and pop shops, you know, around around your local community um, that are going to want to spend their money for, for a national, uh, essentially a national um, opportunity. So that's the challenge, I think, in, in curling. But uh, really for teams, you've you got to get out there and, and you got to knock on doors. You've you got to, you know, come up with a good proposal and, and uh, give those companies you know, some value. And, and obviously in our situation in, in a team like Cooey and Jennifer Jones and Holman who are on TV a lot, you know, we have, we have something to, to offer in, in that, uh, you know, you're probably getting anywhere from 20, 30, 40 hours of national TV coverage. So um, that makes it easier. But for the average team, that's, that's the big, biggest challenge. And, and, and you need that sponsorship to grow and get better. Um, so it's something that you have to do and, and you have to put the time and effort into. Also this weekend, the Prestige Hotels and Resorts Classic took place in Vernon, B.C. In the women's event, Team Gim of Korea defeated Team De Young of Sexsmith, Alberta, 7-4 in the final. Meanwhile, in the men's event, Matt Dunstone and his new team that includes Braden Mosquey at third defeated Jim Cotter and his new team that features Steve Laycock at third, 8-5 in the final. Matt Dunstone joined from the hack to discuss his team's victory and their early season progress. Matt, you and your team won the Prestige Hotels and Resorts Classic in Vernon with an 8-5 win over Team Cotter in the final. The scoreboard seemed to indicate that it was a back-and-forth affair that neither team really controlled. How did the final actually play out? Yeah, I mean, I think the scoreboard ran pretty pretty true with your analysis there. I mean, the first, uh, I would say the first three ends of that game, uh, Cotter had us on the ropes uh, quite a bit, actually. I mean, for us to, for us to have a one one point lead after three ends was it was a big surprise to us and I mean uh, even being down one after four we were pretty happy with that position considering how things had gone but uh, kind of in, in the in the back back half of that game uh, from ends five five through to eight uh, we, we did a pretty good job of controlling controlling the, the front of the house and then the angles and uh, we, we controlled most most of those ends the rest of the way. You've played in four events so far this season, and you've qualified for the playoffs in three of them, including your win in Vernon and a second-place finish at the Oakville Fall Classic. Sometimes it takes a new team a little longer to find their groove. Are you a little ahead of schedule at this point? Uh, you know what? I, I think uh, it, it's come along a lot smoother than, than I think all of us have kind of thought it would. Because, um, I mean, a, a big part of that as well is, is you know, Braden. Braden's played with uh, Dustin Catlin before. Catlin's played with Dustin before, and so so these guys have all played with each other at, at some point. So so all three of them are very familiar with one another and and their on ice tendencies and whatnot. So I think that's that's one thing that's also made this transition 
um, for everybody quite smooth, um, you know, but I, I, we're, we're very happy with, with where we are right now and, and this point. And, uh, I mean, the success we've had so far this season is just kind of a bonus. Um, basically, our, our goals for the year were basically just to uh, get – just mesh, mesh as quick as we can and uh, put ourselves in a good position for the Grand Slams. As mentioned, you're skipping a new team this year that includes Braden Moskowi, Catlin Schneider, and Dustin Kidby. With Braden coming back to Saskatchewan after spending the last cycle in Manitoba playing with Reed Carruthers, what makes you and Braden a good fit at third and skip on this team? Uh, you know, I like so just from talking with Braden, I think we have very uh, similar views on, on how we like to play the game. Um, kind of strategy wise, I'd, like I'd, I'd, we haven't had very many disagreements uh, at all. We, we seem to just instant, instantly be on the same page when it came to that. And um, I just think we're very similar players, very similar personalities, and, and, and that part's made it easy to, to to have that chemistry at the back end, which is obviously very important. Um, and I mean, it's he's definitely definitely been a, been a great addition, a great teammate. Uh, to have this far I mean with, with the amount of experience he has and, and the success he's had um, I mean it's it's definitely rubbing off and, and he's, he's definitely taught me a couple things just in the first four events here and finally Matt uh, teams tend to have different focuses entering the first year of a new cycle in your case was your team more focused on peaking in time for the playdowns in an effort to gain a place at the Briar or were you hoping to fast track things early in the season as you have to help you qualify for a slam or two in the first half of the season uh, you know it's I think uh, our number one goal this year is to be Saskatchewan at the Briar. That, that was that we sat down and and that's our number one for sure. Um, and there's also that other Canada Cup spot up for grabs um, in at the beginning of December. So I mean that's kind of a mid-season goal for us. I mean, uh, being a brand new team, obviously it's it's not easy to to get yourself up to that level right away, and and we all know that. But um, we've definitely given ourselves a pretty pretty good chance to to put us in a position, anyways, to in the running for that last spot. So, th- so that's definitely a goal of ours, especially being kind of a hometown uh, Canada Cup for us. And then, uh, I mean, as it stands right now, we actually just uh, got invited to, to the Masters out in Truro for the next slam there. So, um, I mean, the, the slams are starting to come along and, and definitely uh, the Briar the and, and Canada Cup are kind of the ones we're really gunning for. In other curling action this weekend, Tanya Hilliard and Stuart Thompson, both of Dartmouth, led their teams to titles at the Curling Store Cash Peel in Lower Sackville, Nova Scotia. Meanwhile in Europe, Team Hegner of Switzerland won the women's event, and Team Shalomitsky of Belarus won the men's event at the Tallinn International in Estonia. Finally this weekend, the Avenair Cash Peel took place in Edmonton, where Nikki Kaufman and her team won a Battle of Edmonton by defeating Tiffany Stuber 5-1 in the final. In the men's final, Carson Sturmey and his University of Alberta team defeated Team Usselman of Rocky Mountain House, Alberta by a score of 4-2. Carson Sturmey joined from the hack to discuss his team's victory and to look ahead to what will be a very busy year for him and his Panda teammates. Carson, uh, your team won the Avenir Cash Peel in Edmonton on the weekend, defeating Team Usselman 4-2 in the final. The score would indicate that it was a fairly wide-open affair. How did the final actually play out? Uh, it was actually a very well-played game on both sides. Uh, the score would definitely indicate that it was wide open, but it really wasn't the fact. Uh, it was a well-played uh, game on both sides from the perspective of each team was really efficient at forcing one another, and then the steal that we grabbed in the fifth end really swung things in our favor. Personally, this was your third victory on the World Curling Tour, but it was a first victory for other members of your team. How much confidence does a result like this early in the season give your team moving forward? 
Yeah, it's a huge confidence boost. Uh, we are starting the season a little later than we had uh, earlier anticipated. We were hoping to go to the Saskatoon WCP event that unfortunately got cancelled. But So uh, really glad that we came out of the blocks and got a good start, especially considering that uh, this is a slightly new combination of players. So really good confidence boost to know that we're playing well this early in the season. Carson, you were one of the young players on the Canadian curling scene that some folks speculated might end up on a veteran team to start this new cycle. However, you chose to start the cycle playing World Curling Tour events with your university team. I know you're focused on a few specific events this season, but is the goal for your team to progress over the next few seasons, grow as a unit uh, with an eye towards the pre-trials and potentially the trials in 2021? You know what, I'm actually really looking forward to building with this team. Obviously, this year, our immediate focus is doing the best we can to prepare for the University at Games and represent Canada in Russia during the month of March to the best of our ability. But beyond that, I think that we have a really great group of talented guys who are also really great individuals that I'm really good friends with, and I really look forward to building with them and seeing what we can do over the next couple of years. And finally, Carson, in March, you'll be representing Canada at the World Universiad in Krasnoyarsk, Russia. Is it fair to say that you've built your competition schedule this season with an eye towards peaking for the World Universiad? Yeah, we have a pretty busy schedule. I think we have about seven or eight events, uh, most of them within Alberta, but a couple out of province. So we're heading off to Manitoba in a couple weekends, and then we've also got uh, the Penticton WCT event uh, in November, I believe. And then a little closer, uh, we're obviously going to go through the men's playdown process and get some really good competitive games in that respect. And then we've also got a trip to Phoenix booked in January for the Golden Wrench Classic, so we're really excited for that. Before we get to our final guest of this week's podcast, I'd like to remind everyone that From the Hack is part of the Curling Podcast Network. This week, the two ladies at Two Girls in the Game welcome the godfather of curling media, George Karras, who also happens to be an Olympic medalist. Meanwhile, on the Curling Legends podcast, Kevin's guest this week will be Linda Moore, a former Scotties champion best known for her many years in the TSN booth, along with Vic Router and Ray Turnbull. And our final guest this week is 1998 Olympic silver medalist and Sportsnet curling commentator Mike Harris, who joined me for our yearly early season chat about the world of curling. Mike, I want to start with Team Gushu's performance in winning the Elite Ten. It was their first event of the season, and according to Brad, the team did not spend much time over the summer thinking about curling at all. How impressive was it to see them perform so well in winning the first slam of the season? Yeah, I think it's very impressive. Uh, and, you know, and I, I mentioned in the broadcast, it just kind of speaks to the talent level of that team. They're uh, you know, one of those things where they're they're better than most people all all the time, if you know what I mean. And and even when they haven't practiced, uh, you know. And and having said that, you know, a month into the season isn't a ton of time. Um, one of the advantages they have is that they did stick together from last year. So you know, they they don't have to. They're not fighting through that unfamiliar <laughs> scenario with with new teammates, that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, to to do what they did and. And uh, to play as well as they did was was great, and and it just goes to show you how you know how how deep that team is. You know, all four players you could argue are the best at their positions, and uh, yeah, they they stepped right in. So yeah, it's uh, it's certainly a credit to, uh, to I think it just you know credit to all the hard work they've done over the last number of years to to kind of be in a position like that. And you know they're they're so technically sound. You know, you look at guys. You know, they're. <laughs> They're, like I said, they're, they're better than most, and they've, they've just worked so hard over the years. So, yeah, it was great. 
In the women's event at the Elite 10, Team Hasselberg of Sweden won their first career Grand Slam title. Now, this is a young team that went through a lot last season, including winning an Olympic gold medal. How impressive is it that they've been able to step up early this season, losing in the final to Team Holman at the Curling World Cup in China earlier this season, and now winning the Elite 10 in their second event? Uh, well, I'm, I'm not surprised. I, I don't think uh, anyone should be. I mean, obviously, uh, winning an Olympic gold medal, I think that took, took a couple people by surprise, uh, but... You know they're they're so they're such a driven team. You know you watch. Uh, we did a fix on them a, a couple of years ago on our uh, Grand Slam series, and uh, you know they're they're just they work hard at the game all the time. They're they they love it. You can just tell by the way they they are on the ice, and uh, they're getting better all the time. I was speaking to Anna kind of during our commercial break to try to interview with her afterwards, and I kind of asked her how she. Uh, met Wayne Madaw, who was there coaching, um, and she said, "Well, we we contacted them in the summer. We we worked on we were working on things uh, with their national team program." I said, "Wow, I mean, you know, it's it's impressive to think that even after winning with the gold medal, they were just still to improve, and and uh, that's kind of scary for the rest of the teams on on the circuit because we 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 do see them keep getting better all the time and." Uh, you know the the Olympics is as big of a deal as, as it is to win an Olympic gold medal. You know in that field, there's only six or seven teams that that can win. You come to a slam, and all ten teams are typically very very good. And and uh, you know to 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 whistle through a a field like they had at the at the Elite Ten made it look pretty easy. You know they uh, they gave up a couple of skins in the in the semifinal game against Rachel Holman, and both of those were because. Uh, Anna missed her last shot. It had nothing to do with with Rachel's team generating uh, offense, if you know what I mean. So it was it was a little bit of uh, just a great performance from them, and and uh, they're they're pretty impressive to watch. But I think they're going to continue to get better. And then the main reason is that said they're just so driven to to become that uh, the best team in the world. And and I don't think you know they wanted they want to kind of get to where Rachel Holman was a few years where she was winning just about everything she went in. Um, and this is the start of that for them. Several quote-unquote power backends, meaning the third and the skip, were created to start the cycle. Uh, Reed Carruthers and Mike McEwen, Alina Petz and Sylvana Tiranzoni, and Kerry Anderson and Val Sweeting. Each of these teams have played well to start the season, but aside from simply getting used to each other, what are the biggest challenges for those players and those teams when two successful skips pair up like that? Well, I mean, the biggest thing is that you know the, whoever is not now calling the game has to, you know, basically accept the, the calls. Uh, the interesting part is we've got two situations where uh, both with, with Reed Carruthers and with Sylvana Tiranzoni that they are calling the game and throwing third, and they brought in you know Mike McEwen and Alina to throw last rock. So from that standpoint, it, it's interesting that uh, you know, if Mike had just come in and, and played third, for example, or Alina had come in and played third, I think it might be an easier adjustment. Uh, but when you know someone other than you yourself is dictating the strategy and you're the one that's going to have to throw last rock. I think there's certainly a challenge there, uh, you know, just accepting what's, what your role is on the team. And uh, Reed actually referred to it in one of the interviews, you know, kind of we had overstepped our boundaries. As a, you know, they, they obviously had a game plan going in, uh, and I'm not sure exactly what he's referring to, but, you know, he talked about the roles that each of the teammates had and, you know, one of in one instance, they certainly had a case where someone had overstepped the boundaries. What that means, you'd have to ask Reed exactly. But I think it, it goes just goes to the point of uh, you know you have to have one strategist who really um, kind of dictates the way you're going to play. And 
And you've got, you've got uh, two different strategies, then it could be tougher, I suppose. But, uh, you know, at the top level, between Reed and Mike, I mean, there's there's not a whole lot that you need to understand in terms of strategy. You make the right call or you don't, basically, at the top level amends. And, and uh, you know, that that's that's the way it has to go. But uh, I, think, I think at the end of the day, the challenge is for the person that's not calling the game anymore, <laughs> you know, to, to accept their role. So Alina and Mike McEwen, in this case, are the ones that really have to, you know, I think it would be harder for them. Okay. Uh, but, you know. Yeah, but again, again, when it comes to throwing the actual last stone, you know, again, I, and I always say this to, to, to my team, even my third or my second, whoever it is, you still have to defer to the thrower on the last, as the last rock's being delivered. But, um, you know, but beyond that, it's, uh, it's just a question of, of, of accepting your role. Now, while there were some wholesale changes on some teams, other teams simply got tweaked for the new cycle with the addition of one new player. Which individual players do you think might be feeling the most pressure early in the season while on a new team? Well, I guess it depends on, on how you look at it. You know, I, I my my quick my quick observation the the player that comes to mind immediately is Tracy Fleury, um, stepping into Carrie Anderson's uh, role as the skip on that team. Um, biggest challenge for her is is that her style of play is so much different than Carrie's. Carrie's uh, you know phenomenal hitter and kind of always tried to solve her problems with a run back or a, a big weight shot. And generally, Tracy is uh, kind of a soft to touch player. Um, so there's, there's, and it, the challenge isn't not only for her, but it's also her teammates understanding how Tracy calls the game and manages the game. So that team might have a, you know, some some growing pains <laughs> to go. Men's side, I was curious to see how BJ and Kevin Cooey would would get along. And uh, we mentioned in our telecast that you know Ben thought they're getting along great. Ben Hebert, uh, you know, playing front, he was surprised how well they're getting along. But they're getting along really well because they're winning. You know, that's part of it. <laughs> you know, as you go through some challenges, then it's going to be a question of, of you know, how they do in, in, uh, in a tough time. Because I think, uh, you know, watching BJ over the years with, with Mike, you know, BJ's pretty matter-of-fact when it comes to strategy and, and doesn't really have a lot of uh, patience for nonsense, if you know what I mean. And, and so, you know, Kevin's kind of the type of skipper kind of waffles a bit. You know, he's, you know, he's always tight for time. <laughs> When we watched him over the years, and, and uh, you know, Mark Kennedy was kind of really good at coddling and kind of getting him to where he needed to get him. And, you know, I don't I don't see BJ being quite as patient along those lines. I mean, it would kind of be more just, just give us, you know, give us the call and let's go type of, type of guy. So I'm curious to see how they do. Uh, I don't think there's a, additional pressure on BJ. You know, the pressure just as much on Kevin as is on BJ, both very, very successful players. Yeah, and then, uh, you know, in the, in the men's team, there's, there's not a ton of guys I look at other than, say, Mike McEwen, uh, you know, playing with Reed. But, again, I think the pressure goes both ways, be with Reed also to, to manage uh, the game the way Mike needs to, to be successful. So, you know, it's it's just a tough thing. It, it doesn't matter if you change one player, two players, or three players. So, you know, there are four new players like we have with uh, Kerry Anderson's new team. Um, there's always challenges. There's always growing pains. But, uh you know, winning winning kind of makes a lot of those growing things go away. In the first year of a new cycle, some new lineups do really well from the outset. Some take a bit longer to find their groove, while other new lineups simply do not click. Now, it's still very early in the new cycle, obviously, but when do teams, especially those that are not clicking early, start to get concerned? Has it already started for some, or is that something that happens closer to the playdowns? Well, I think I think they'll know within the first couple of months. I, I don't, see it, don't, don't see it taking that long, to be honest. You know, you get a pretty pretty good sense of things. So, you know, and, and part of it really depends on on the mentality going in. You know, I I, I would go back to Kevin Martin, his his expectation of his teammates were very clear. You know, it was okay. You need to be this 
work our resume and just sort of rock this, this off and then you need to throw, when we go out and play, you want you to throw 85 to 90% cut and dry. Like, and, you know, personality didn't have a huge factor on it at the beginning of, of, uh, of, a, of, a, of a relationship, if you want to put it that way. Um, you, know, you know, when we first got together with John Morris and, and Mark Kennedy and John Hebert, you know, we always go through kind of a bit of a dictatorship, just do what Kevin says. And, and uh, that, that relationship evolved over the years. And, and, and the stronger their kind of the, the off-ice and uh, chemistry became, the better that team became, you know, tougher and tougher to beat sort of thing. So, you know, it, it really depends on, on the mindset going in. Uh, you know, your mindset is kind of let's make sure we make as many shots as possible and do whatever it takes and everyone's on the same page, then that's great. What When you start having problems is when expectations of one player are different than the expectations of others. So as long as everyone's kind of of the same mindset, you know, that, you know, generally you'll see teams sit together. It's, it's when, or they, they're not winning it. Last week, Devin Aru of CBC Sports wrote an article about Team Adin and their financial uncertainty this season after the Swedish Olympic Committee cut much of their funding. Sometimes I get a sense that people in the quote-unquote larger curling community believe that each of the elite teams are basically full-time curlers making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. The reality is a bit different than that. Can you perhaps shed a little light on curling sponsorship and on the financial commitment many top players are still required to make in order to compete at the elite level? That's true. I mean, the, 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 biggest, the biggest challenge is for, for teams just trying to break through uh, in order to, to, you know, to get enough points to get into the sign. It's one of those things where the rich get richer sort of thing in, in curling. Once you're established in the top five or six teams in the world, and it's only the top five or six, it's not, not beyond that, um, then you're, you know you're going to get on television X number of times, and you know you're going to, you know, you, you're able to sell yourself uh, from a sponsorship perspective. So, um, teams like Kevin Cooey and and uh, Brad Gushu, they certainly have a, an opportunity. Uh, Jennifer Jones, another, and Rachel Holman, of course, those are, you know the top four in terms of sponsorship dollars uh, generated. I, I would say that they they know they're going to be on TV X number of games. So let's uh, you know they're able to sell themselves. Brad Jacobs does a good job of it as well, uh, making sure that uh, you know they're they're sponsors. And so there are obligations uh, that they also have to fulfill, but but. Generally speaking, they're they're ahead of the game before they even start. So, um, but for young teams, what you're looking, you know, to, to compete enough to get into the slams, you're looking at a minimum sixty to seventy thousand dollar commitment minimum. Um, include that's flights, hotels, entry fees to get into enough events to try to get points to move forward. So, if you think of that, so you're basically everyone throws in fifteen grand, call it minimum. Um, you're able to. You, They'll, they'll be able to find a couple of local sponsors for ten to fifteen thousand dollars, call it, to offset some of their costs. Uh, but it's pretty tough, and it's a grind. And, and uh, you know, if you're and you're winning a bit of money, you know, if you can win, you know, the odds feel for ten grand here or there, or fifteen thousand here or there. Um, what generally happens is you now are going to go play more spiel. <laughs> so, uh, you know, then, so now the budget increases a bit. So now you're going to spend that 15000 you want, and we're going to go to two or three more spiels and try to get in. And even to the slams, they're paying their, their hotels and entry, or their flights and everything to the slams. So uh, and then they go to the slams for a while, and they get their butts kicked for a bit, and they're not winning much money at the slams. And uh, so it's really tough, you know. And once you start getting into the, you kind of call it a fringe team on in the slams, the guys are, you know, 10 ranked 10th to 15th where they, you know, it'd be a surprise for them to qualify that type of thing. You know, you're looking at maybe minimal $100,000 now in expenses per year. And, uh, you know, you haven't sold any more sponsorship yet. 
<laughs> and and really not winning that much more money yet. So you know, it, it's a big commitment, and and uh, for for the paint of heart of the non-committed athlete, someone who's worried about you know mortgage payments and has kids and whatever else, it's really difficult. It's really tough to to make sure that um, you know what you're doing is is worthwhile. If that's the best way to put it. So um, we all went through it. Every team's gone through it. Uh, great story about Brad Gushu back in when he was when he went to the to the Olympic trials qualifier bond spiel in Ottawa. That's the one that he won that got him into the spot to get to the trials in Torino. He didn't have flights home yet because the, their team was out of money. And uh, had they not won the bond spiel, they would have been in big trouble even just to get home. Uh, like a crazy, crazy story when you think of it now. Uh, but Brad Gushu basically, they were all in. They end up winning the bonds. I think the first prize like fifteen grand. Got them into the got them into the Olympic trials, and then of course they went on to win and Olympic gold, and then they were fine <laughs> afterwards. But the expenses that he incurs living in in uh, Newfoundland are, are much higher than someone who lives out west or even in Toronto. You know, probably double. You know, the, the flight cost. I, I Brad would I I, I don't know. You'd have to have to ask him, but I'm. I guess the hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand dollar range for all the stuff he travels to and and uh and that's just just because flights out of St. John's are crazy expensive and and uh, and then to touch on Nicholas Adine, you know, being a funded athlete for all these years. The culture in, in Sweden isn't just it just isn't to find corporate sponsors. It's always been a kind of a government funded thing and and uh even all the way back to Pale Lindholm, you know, back in the day. Uh you know, not that they were funded to the same extent that Nicholas is, uh, but or Nicholas was, I should say. So it's tough, yeah. So, and the nice thing for for the teams in Canada, you know, with the Grand Slams, is that all the events are televised live here. So selling a sponsorship to Nicholas Adin is very, you know, what's the benefit to us? You know, when they when a, when a corporate sponsor, they need a hundred thousand dollars. Well, what do I get out of that? Well. You get TV exposure in Canada, you know, from a, for a Swedish company. That's that's no big deal. <laughs> you know, the, how does that help them? So they they have a, they have a challenge to, to to try to figure out a way to, to sell. And I know they met with the Swedish Canadian Business Association. I think when they're at the players last year in Toronto, who were trying to help them somehow. But yeah, they've got they've got a real challenge on their hands. And you know, it wouldn't wouldn't surprise me to see them play more in Europe over the next few years. I know they don't like missing slams, uh, but you know, for them to come to a slam, it, you're talking. You know, flight from Europe and hotels and everything, it's at least ten to $15,000. So they have to make semis to make it worth their while to come over here for a Grand Slam event. And uh, it's a shame. Uh, you know, they're, you know, number one team in the world most of last year. And, and um, you know, it, it, it was reigning world champions, right? So <laughs> it's hard to imagine having an event over here without them. But uh, they're, they're, they're kind of between a rock and a hard place. But it's, uh, it's not easy. And the only thing I can say is that every team that's ever played on the circuit has gone through it. We went through it. We came out of junior. Our first sponsorship deal was, uh, I think we got $10,000 uh, from JVC, which we were grateful for, and we had 100% payback. We paid them half of our winnings until we paid them back all of the money they gave us. So all we had was basically a $10,000 parachute in case we didn't win, in case we didn't win a nickel. You know, we, we, we weren't, we weren't out that 10000 that we, that we would have been otherwise. But uh, we managed to pay them back, and then over the years we gradually increased our sponsorship deals with them where they finally started paying us a little bit of money. Um, and by the time we went to the Olympics, you know, we were getting a, a decent amount of money back then from from them. But that was before the slams, pre pre slam era. You know, finding a sponsor would give you a hundred thousand dollars was impossible. Um, 
but you've got a few teams now, especially out west. You know, Kevin Cooley, as I said, Kevin Cooley, Brad Gushu, Jennifer Jones, uh, Reed Carruthers did a great job of uh, generating sponsorship dollars. The you know Princess Auto has been a been a blessing to that team, I know for sure. So, yeah, if you can find a, a key sponsor, you know, you have to you have to be creative. You know, figure out ways to to make it work to sponsor the file other than television appearances, which I said that's what we did at the beginning. We had a payback system with uh, with our first couple of sponsors, and it worked well. And finally, Mike, each year when you and I chat near the start of the curling season, I ask you if there is something that is not on the radar of the larger curling community yet that might be a story everyone is talking about by the end of the season. A few years ago, you mentioned Broomgate before it made waves, and last season, you anticipated that American teams would have solid seasons. Now, no pressure, but do you have anything that you're keeping an eye on this season? How was I that smart? I don't know. Uh... Well, I don't know. I, I, I'm interested to see how the new teams. I think that's the big story this year. Just the new teams. I don't think the broom thing's uh, all done yet either. I just uh, I'm I'm watching the trends out on on the ice right now, and and uh, what 90 percent of the teams are going to one particular brand of broom. Um, that's a re- bit of a red flag to me that uh, the, the broom uh, conversation isn't over yet. And I've not heard any rumblings to that. You know, just to to clarify, but when you look around. There's there's something amiss there. Uh, yeah, and I think just uh, like I said, the the, the new teams, uh, the lineups that are that are in play right now. I, I I'm I'm excited to watch Gary and his new team play. There's a lot of talk about you know putting four skips together, but the front end is very young. And I just go back to a team like Wayne Madaw and Peter Corner joining the Howards, uh, just other juniors, you know, young guys, and uh, that seemed to work out pretty well for for uh, you know that back so that back end and Wayne and Pete, uh, all three juniors and stuff. So. You know, I, I'm I'm excited to watch that team play, and I said I, I it wouldn't shock me to see another another broom summit coming towards the end of the season. And that does it for this week's episode of the From the Hack podcast. A big thank you to all of our guests. Join us next week when our feature interview will be with Colin Grahamslaw, the Secretary General of the World Curling Federation. I'm Frank Rock, and this is From the Hack. <laughs>